Warning, this podcast includes graphic descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. If you are a victim of violence or sexual violence, resources are included in these show notes. Scene tape and enjoy. Welcome, everyone. It's episode 10, the big 1 0. I am your host, Pony, the dude that's here for the food, with my lovely co host, Jennifer, the wife with the knife. <laughs> Hello. So, on this episode, we're going to be discussing when forensics fail. Going to dive into what that means. Yeah, can forensics fail? Forensics can fail. I learned, I I did a deep dive research on this and found stunningly upsetting amount of failure in the way forensics are presented in court. Oh no. Stunning failures. Presented or, well, you'll tell us all about it. Right. The way that it turns up in court, the way it's presented in court as being. This is 100% infallible. Turns out it's 100% fallible. Or very large amount fallible. Okay. This is going to be... You'll probably be as shocked as I am once you hear all the data behind these forensic failures. So, I earlier this week I tasked you. I said that this is what the episode's going to be about. What recipe did you come up for when forensics fail? It's one pot lasagna soup. And when you told me, you said it was something about you didn't. You never yeah, tell so me what this is. This it's actually the title about. Well, is this actually soup? Right. Or is it neither? So I was trying to find something that you, you know, that kind of is mixed up. Like you think uh-huh. it's one thing, uh-huh. it's something else. So like one you presented it as soup. lasagna, but it's not lasagna. You presented it as soup, but it's, <laughs> but it's not, not soup. really soup. But it it doesn't look like a soup. But it sounds really good. Well, at first I was disgusted. But it really sounds good now. And I'm always up for trying something new, so. Absolutely. Let's try a recipe that sounds disgusting. (laughs) Well, lasagna soup. I mean, at first I was judging the title of the the dish, and it was kind of making me, you know. Yeah, I didn't know if I really wanted to do that, so. Anyway, but it's got all the lasagna ingredients in it. Okay, so what is the ingredients? Okay, so you need a half a pound of lean ground beef, a half a pound of Italian ground sausage, you need a tablespoon of olive oil because we're going to cook some onions, some chopped onions, some three cloves of minced garlic cloves. Did I say cloves? You did. You said cloves. Yeah, so... I think you meant gloves. What the hell are you talking about? Yep. And so a half a cup of yellow onion chopped, three garlic cloves minced, three tablespoons of tomato paste, a jar of marinara sauce or your own homemade, 
um, a quarter teaspoon of red pepper flakes, salt, black ground pepper, garlic powder, oregano, thyme, seven cups of beef broth or chicken broth, nine to ten uncooked lasagna noodles broken up into pieces, okay. some baby spinach, at least three cups, but I'm using kale, <laughs> which I know you'll just love. Um, a half oh, a cup of shredded, well this is a healthy, healthier version also of Oh, lasagna. I knew there was a trick to this. <laughs> a half a cup of shredded parm, one cup of fresh ricotta cheese, and one cup of shredded mozzarella. Okay, and is this just from a generic recipe factory or any certain place you got this? Well, I was scrolling through Instagram and I came across Sailor Bailey. Her handle is sailor underscore bailey she has insanely good food mostly on the healthy side new recipes weekly colorado so i clicked on it and we're making it that's what well, we're, we're making find out if, from if sailor that, bailey if those two statements can be true in the same paragraph <laughs> that it can be insanely good and healthy yeah i only think of one food that's insanely good and healthy and that's pizza <laughs> how is pizza healthy well it has all the food groups well, Absolutely. depends on how you get it, but yeah, I guess you could, yeah. And if you drink a beer with it, it, it becomes the entire food pyramid. It's beer on the pyramid? Sure, right at the top. <laughs> okay. Okay, so we've taken the liberty of going ahead and browning the hamburger meat to speed up the process. Yes. This is one pound of browned hamburger meat. Well, it's a half a pound of half. Italian sausage and a half a pound of hamburger meat. Okay. We need to, um, I'm going to add some oil here. Olive oil? Yes, so I in just put... In a actual pot. I put it in a pot. Not in a pan. Oh, excuse me. And we're going to heat that up. We're going to heat that up just for a minute and we're going to add our, um, we're going to saute the onion and minced garlic. Okay, we've got the minced garlic all cut up and well, onions minced. all cut up. And that goes in the oil? Yes. We're going to go ahead and put that into the it. pot there. Wait, listen to that. <laughs> yeah, that's the cutting board. Yes, I literally was cutting. On the cutting board. Like for breakdancing. <laughs> and what did you just put in there? Just a little bit more garlic. A little bit more garlic. Yes, you can never have too much garlic. And then we're gonna saute that up for about five minutes. We're gonna saute it up for about five minutes. And then we're gonna add three tablespoons of tomato paste. Okay. To get this good go. and Oops, sorry. make sure the onion is translucent. Yes, I forget you're supposed to be doing this. See, I have learned a thing or two. Yes, translucent, fragrant. We're gonna add in the tomato paste. I'll do that for you. Well, okay. go how ahead. much tomato paste are we putting in there? Three tablespoons. Three tablespoons. Good job. We're like a team here now. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> well, we're ten episodes deep, and I think you have horribly failed at your mission to teach me to cook. I have vaguely learned a little bit of the terminology, but I still am nowhere near being able to cook. Well, you have to do it more often than once here and there for, I can a, make for a the podcast. Mean grilled cheese sandwich. 
I have not had one of your cookies. It's really mean. And what I mean by that is angry. And you will pay for having eaten that really mean grilled cheese sandwich. Why is it angry? Especially if you're lactose intolerant. And then we're going to add in all the seasonings. Okay. What seasoning is this? So we're going to add the salt and pepper. Of course. There's the salt. There's the garlic powder. There's the thyme. Did you have a second bowl of that? For the thyme after thyme? <laughs> and then there's red pepper flakes. And we're going to add some oregano. There's oregano. Mix all that up together. Okay. Don't let it burn. Because that's all that's in there right now. And we're gonna add the marinara sauce. And I got Rayo's homemade marinara. Tony Soprano's blend? Yes. That's getting really hot. Yeah, I'm real hot. You need a 24 ounce jar. Burn that down. It's like a volcano. A lot. <laughs> that was an explosion of Italian. And then we're going to add seven cups of chicken broth. All I'm right. up for trying something new. And then we're going to add in the broken lasagna shells, which I went ahead and broke those up. And we're going to add yes. these in very gently. Add it so it doesn't splatter everywhere. I used a whole box because lasagna is, Italian food is good the next day. I think it gets better as the days go on. Oh, yes, yes. Reheated lasagna and yes. reheated spaghetti, raviolis, etc., etc. Now, listener, we had our, uh, our teenage daughter, Maya, come in and break up these lasagna noodles. And I, I kid you not, she filled the room with eye rolls. <laughs> and she cannot believe we were forcing her to do such menial labor tasks. Wow. When her time would be better served in the gaming world. Now, these super hard noodles will soften and yes. become like real lasagna. Yep, I'm going to cover it and let it sit for a little bit so it can... The, the noodles can cook. And then we add the meat later? Yes, the meat and the cheeses and Okay, the so how long does it have to cook? Healthy kale. About 20-25 minutes for the pasta. Okay, well while that is simmering, I will dive right into today's topic. When forensics fail. Now in the summer of 1660, an Englishman named William Harrison vanished near the village of Charingworth in Gloucestershire, Gloucestershire, it's in England. Okay. <laughs> His blood-stained hat was soon discovered on the side of a local road. Police interrogated Harrison's servant, John Perry, and eventually Perry gave a statement that his mother and his brother had killed Harrison for money. Mm. Perry, his mother, and his brother were hanged. Two years later, Harrison reappeared in the village. What? He wasn't dead. Okay. He insisted, fancifully, that he had been abducted by a band of criminals and sold into slavery. Whatever happened, one thing was indisputable. He had not been murdered by the Perrys. 
that were that the village had already hung, hung all hung the them. Yes. So that is a prime example of when forensics fail. Early example. Early wow. Example. What in what year was that? That was in 1660. Oh wow. Okay. In Gloucestershire. Glos in, uh, in England. In England. Let's move on to some aspects of when forensics fail. Okay. Fingerprints. Right? They right. take your fingerprints all the time. We've all been led to believe that everybody has unique fingerprints. If they find your fingerprints at a scene, there's no way you can argue that, right? Right. Wrong. Oh, okay. <laughs> and these are, this is going to get very shocking. Brandon Mayfield, an Oregon lawyer, spent two weeks in jail in 2004 because three FBI experts matched his fingerprints with those found on a piece of evidence from the Madrid, Spain train bombings. Oh. Oregon lawyer involved in the Madrid, Madrid Spain's Spain, yeah. terrorist bombings of a train. Now Brandon was released when Spanish authorities rest, arrested an Algerian man and determined that the print on the evidence had actually come from a partial palm print of the suspect. And it was a pattern in the, in the loops and swirls that exactly matched one of the fingers of Brandon. From Oregon. From Oregon. Who'd never been to Spain. Oh, wow. Where they messed up was they had a partial print that turned out to be from his palm of the terrorist, but they were matching it to fingers. Oh. But this guy's palm, right there in that area, matched one of the fingers of this guy in Oregon. Oh, that happens? I guess, I guess it so. Does. <laughs> now, it may be that your thumbprint is unique and nobody else has a thumbprint matching yours, but a person may have a portion of their foot pad or another finger or a portion of their palm, and if they get just a portion of it, it could match exactly the pattern that's on your thumb. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. I thought it was all But you unique. see people testify in court all the time like this was that person's finger. So they have to match it not only to make sure, okay, this is a from a finger, but it has to be from a specific finger. So what happened? So he got released, and the other guy got charged with the, the terrorist okay, bomb. Okay, okay. The handful of studies of fingerprints show a troubling pattern of errors. Since 1995, Collaborative Testing Services, a company that evaluates the reliability and performance of fingerprint labs, has administered an annual and voluntary test. These are guys that do like audits of actual forensics testing facilities like the FBI and other places. It sends fingerprint labs a test that includes eight to 12 pairs of prints that examiners confirm or reject as matches. So this is, they have, what they do is these labs have guys that specialize in fingerprints, mm -hmm. right? So they'll get, a, they'll get two cards or they'll get multiple cards and they'll take these cards and like one of the cards is of a suspect and the other card they usually have as like these are samples from the test from the from the area from the crime scene and they say can you get any of these to match this person and this person has to look at each one and see if any of these loops and swirls from fingerprints that they have on these from the crime scene matches this but usually when you're when you get fingerprints from a crime scene you don't know, I mean, unless the person puts a perfect handprint, right. you don't know that, okay, this is the right thumb, and this one is 
left index finger. I mean, it could just be there's a fingerprint. You don't know if it came from the right hand, left hand, came from the foot. You don't, you don't know. Right. So these guys have to, and it's as much, it turns out it's as much an art as it is a science what of matching. Don't stuff. they have computers to do that? They do have computers. There's AI now that they're really working on, and they're saying it has a, actually it has a much better rate of success than the human does. It still has to be double-checked by a human. Right. So this lab, or this, this testing service, they send, you might say, fake cases to these labs as an audit every year to test them. They send the labs a test that includes 8 to 12 pairs of prints that examiners confirm or reject as matches. The pairs usually consist of complete, not partial prints. Like I said, remember, you said usually when they get stuff from the crime scene, you get partial prints, you get smudges. These guys send them pristine, like you went down to the driver's license office and gave them a really good print. So they should have less failure on those than they do on smudges and smears and partials. Do they take fingerprints at driver's license? No, well, if you go down there for, for some things, some no. things require fingerprints. Well, I know like when I do a level two screening for my job, mm -hmm. yep. that's the only time I do. Well, the FBI has my prints, the state of Florida has my prints, I'm in the NCIS, I'm in everything for my different things in the background. Okay. So, by not giving them partial prints, they make identifications easier than the real situation examiners usually face. Nevertheless, the error rate has varied, for, varied from 3% to a dismal 20%. Mm. Now imagine if you're, because by the time you go to court, there's a, there's a lab examiner who's going to come to court and say, I looked at this card and I looked at stuff from the crime scene and there was a match. They're never going to hold up stuff in court and give it to the jury and say, you look at this and look at this. Do you think that matches? They're, this guy is just going to say, hey, it matches. And 20% of the time, they're wrong. Oh, yikes. Anywhere from 3% to 20%, they have a fake match, a false match. Even now? Yeah, even now. It's dismal. It's terrible. That's 20% of the time they can, up to 20% of the time, they can be wrong about matches, about whether something matches or doesn't match. So a good attorney could really get people, yes. get it thrown out. And yes. A, a good, if you got enough money... You can get a good attorney who could say, I looked back at your audits from your lab test, and last year, 15% of the time, you were wrong. Are you sure you're not wrong this time? That's great. You know? Are we helping people, real killers out? Hopefully no criminals <laughs> listen to this podcast. Equally troubling is a test conducted by the FBI. Byron Mitchell was charged with armed robbery in 1999. His lawyers questioned the reliability of fingerprint identifications. In response, the FBI sent two prints taken from the getaway car and Mitchell's prints to 53 different crime labs to confirm the agency's identification. Of the 39 labs that sent back their results, nine, which is 23%, concluded that Mitchell's prints did not match those from the car. The judge nevertheless rejected the defense's challenge and accepted the fingerprint evidence. Mitchell was convicted and remains in prison, and the FBI has not repeated the experiment since. Almost a quarter of the labs said, this guy is not the one who put the fingerprints on the, on the getaway car. But the, but judge, said, got... the judge said, well, I reject that. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the FBI says, well, we're not going to do that again. No, no. <laughs> Try that again. Wow. 
that's and the cool. FBI had sent these off to show in court, hey, these guys always get it right. Great. Now, studies by the National Research Council in 2009, the National Institute of Standards and Technology in 2012, and the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Tech in 2016 all concluded that, and I quote, there is no basis for estimating the number of individuals who might be the source of a particular latent print. Hence, a latent print examiner has no more basis for concluding that the pool of possible sources is probably limited to a single person than for concluding it is certainly limited to a single person. Consequently, there is no scientific basis on which latent print examiners might form expectations as to whether a particular set of features is likely or unlikely to be repeated. Any expectations latent print examiners may have on this matter rest on speculation and guesswork rather than empirical evidence. Great. Let me, let me dumb that down for you. That means they're saying that you get guys that get on the stand and say that they're at some 99.9% that, that is his fingerprint. Or 100%, I, I match those prints. They can't say that. Right. Any kind of scientific accuracy. Yeah. Now I'm going to move on to a piece of evidence that has been presented in court that has a ton of problems. Uh-oh. Bite marks. Oh, bite marks. Bite marks. Keith Howard, Keith Harward, voluntarily supplied a dental impression when questioned about a rape and murder that occurred in 1982. The victim reported that the rapist was wearing a Navy uniform, and Keith Harward was among a group of sailors from a Navy ship in dry dock at that same time. Six forensic dentists testified that Harward's teeth matched, quote, to a scientific certainty, a bite mark on the rape victim's skin. Harward spent 33 years in prison until DNA from a rape kit in the case proved that the victim had been raped by a different sailor on that same ship. Oh, great. Four separate governmental scientific bodies had concluded that bite mark analysis has no basis in science. That includes the President's Council on Advisors on Science and Tech, which said in 2016 that, quote, available scientific evidence strongly suggests that examiners not only cannot identify the source of a bite mark with a reasonable accuracy, they cannot even consistently agree on whether an injury is a human bite mark at all. What? So sometimes there's injuries that they find on a body that they identify as, as a human bite that are not. Huh. And in some of these, they could not even tell the difference between a dog bite. How is that even possible? How, how can you not tell? I will go on to show. Okay. The National Institute of Standards and Technology, the gold standard of measurement science, said in 2022 that bite mark forensics, quote, lacks a sufficient scientific foundation because human dental patterns have not been shown to be unique at the individual level. That there are numerous people that have almost exactly the same measurements for their teeth. Well, that I can believe, but to compare it to an animal... And I'll explain. I'm still on that. Okay. One 2016 study found that self-described experts couldn't distinguish between human and animal bite marks. Others have documented how marks in human skin change over time through healing or decomposition. People that were board certified did not agree about what a bite mark even was, said Adam Freeman, a forensic dentist who once supported bite mark analysis, but has since become one of its biggest critics 
within the profession. He said, if a science is not a science, and it's not reproducible, and it's not reliable, courts of law should not allow it in, period. Wow. So we need to add in the meat here. All right, that's smelling very Italian-y. It smells really good. So I'll hold well, this. Look at that, those noodles got all <laughs> smooshy. They cooked. Here, let me. They went from like a hard cracker to an actual noodle. Oh, wow, a big hunk of meat. That's meat. what she said. <laughs> Hope, well, this is when forensics fail. Hopefully it's not when food fails. This is not gonna fail. It's gonna be good. And you cannot deny my cooking skills as evidenced by you standing here. I'm alive, yes. <laughs> yes, that is the minimum of our requirement is that, yes, I am alive. Well, what have you, what have I made that you haven't liked? That's the shotgun. Is question. there something that I've made that you have, that you don't like? No. <laughs> That's I what I'm asking. Now I have, really think about it. Mm. I've burnt a couple of things here There's there. times when you come home and you crawl under a blanket and you say, I'm not cooking. I really hate that meal. <laughs> that happens. That one really sucks. Yeah. Okay, so how long do we have to put this, keep this simmering? Just for about 10 more minutes. Okay, excellent. Well, I'll get back to the case. Okay. The next group of evidence that, that it really has some problems. Hair analysis. Ooh, hair. But hair has, and fibers. It has DNA. The root of a hair can sometimes have DNA extracted. Oh, you have to get the root. After a number of defendants who had been convicted on the basis of microscopic hair analysis were subsequently exonerated on the basis of DNA, the FBI agreed to an audit of nearly 3,000 cases in which FBI experts had testified the hairs found at the scene of the crime matched the hairs of the defendants. The audit concluded that in no fewer than 96% of those cases, the FBI experts had given testimony that materially overstated the likelihood of the match. Oh, wow. So they had gave 90... erroneous testimony in 96% of cases. Oh, my God. So human hairs are not unique enough to say in court, this is that person's hair and does not match somebody else's hair. Do they, I, do they still do like drug tests with hair? They still do. You still can, you can tell find that. evidence of drugs in someone's hair. What if Ex I... Extensive drug use. Extensive. So what if I dye my hair? The dye doesn't No, because they, they, what they do is they put it in a... If I'm not mistaken, they put it in a chemical bath, which breaks the hair down. And the chemicals that are in the root of the hair that runs down the center of the hair... Then, then they pull out and they say, okay, this is this is the chemicals for all the, the partying that you have done. When do they do that? Like, why would they have to do that? To show that I you... I used to hear about... Because, because you know, people will... I, I'm going to stop being a drug addict, drug addict for two weeks to get this job. And yeah, so they jobs they, do that? Their urine is clean. Right. But then their hair... I actually, when I was in San Antonio, the job market was so crazy that, yeah, there was two places I applied for that, that took hair. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. And they weren't even particularly I... good, good jobs. It wasn't like I was going to, going to go to work for the FBI or something. Right. I haven't had to do that, so I'm just curious. Now this next set really upset me when I read about it. Arson investigation. Arson. Like being able to prove a fire was accidental or on purpose. In October of 1990, 35-year-old Gerald Wayne Lewis stood in the front yard of his Jacksonville, Florida home, holding his three-year-old son in his arms. 
watching helplessly as their home burned. Six people, including Gerald's wife, were killed in the fire. Oh, God. After the blaze was extinguished, fire investigators discovered classic evidence of an arson. Low burn along the walls and floors, burns on the carpet that indicated poor patterns, and puddle configurations. A V-shaped burn pattern at the front door sealed the deal. Someone had poured accelerant on the floor all the way to the front door, then lit the house on fire. That's what all of those indicators tell you. You can the, the classic fire because you follow it and say, okay, here's this V-shaped pattern. This is where the oxygen first hit okay. the fire. Yeah. Gerald claimed that he had actually witnessed the beginning of his fire, that the son had been playing with matches and set the living room couch on fire. Gerald was arrested, charged with arson, and six counts of murder. Oh, of his own family, right? Uh, including his wife. To make sure they had a slam dunk case, prosecutors brought fire expert John DeHaan onto the case. DeHaan literally wrote the textbook on arson investigation. So for years and years and years, this guy literally had a textbook out there that was saying all these things that I just talked about are indicators of arson. So DeHaan, as luck would have it, saw an opportunity and suggested it to the prosecution. He said, if you want, because this guy is coming up with a completely different story, so we have to prove to the jury, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this was arson, and I think I have a perfect way to do it on video. Oh. There was a condemned house next door to the burned house, and as luck would have it, when they build subdivisions, the houses were exactly the same. Okay. So why not set it up exactly like Gerald's house? Light the couch on fire, then show all the way the burn patterns, etc., were different. So if it actually burned on the couch, this is what it looks like. It's completely different than what we found. So we know this guy's lying. So they did. Surprisingly, the fire investigator, when they put the fire out, discovered a previously unknown phenomenon, flashover. A smoldering item in a small room will release heated smoke, which eventually causes the entire room to explode in flame. DeHaan observed low burns along the walls and floors, burns on the carpet that looked like pore patterns and puddle configurations, and a V-shaped burn pattern at the front door where oxygen had been sucked in to fuel the fire. So the charges against Gerald were dropped. Yeah, wow. But what's more upsetting, several years earlier in Texas, a guy had been convicted when his whole family died in a fire, and they had convicted him because all of the same thing, poor patterns, burns along the wall, V-shaped. He always claimed he had nothing to do with it, and then they put him to death. They executed him in Texas. And then the investigators came back through, looked up through all the evidence and said, actually, we were wrong. This was oh flashover. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And he went to his execution knowing that he didn't kill his family. Wow. Now, here's a big one. Now, this is the gold standard of, of forensics evidence in court. DNA. DNA. How could DNA be wrong? Really? So, before you start that, let me just take a look at this. You know what it looks like to me? Lasagna soup. <laughs> I know. I was going to say it just... It's different, though. I do not ultimately feel like I have been lied to. I didn't lie to you. I'm going to go ahead and add the... Parmesan, or excuse me, the mozzarella in there. Well, actually, I'm going to add the Parmesan into the soup. So we're going to put the Parmesan into the soup. It's a half a cup. Or in Jennifer's world, half, three quarters, two cups. Well, you can never have enough cheese either. 
I'll put that in there. We can stir that around. Yeah, I'm gonna add more broth because Quit, woman. <laughs> it needs to You're be a little soupier. No, I'm not. It's making it a little more soupier. So everything can cook. It's making it a little marsupial. There you go. <laughs> Is that what I said? <laughs> no, I said that. Oh, you're messing with my brain. Too much. Okay. This is making it completely platypus. It's a little marsupial. You're hilarious. How long are we gonna let that sit? Just for a few minutes. Okay. It's pretty much ready. Excellent. So, how can DNA be wrong? Right? Yeah, how it's can? It's literally the gold standard of, of forensics investigations. DNA testing has progressed so rapidly that investigators are basing entire cases on smaller and smaller samples. Even so-called touch DNA now regularly appears in court cases. Touch. Just mere skin cells. Hmm. Remember we were watching uh, a case on, um, it might have been on a Netflix series. There was uh, an Indian American husband and wife couple, home invasion, there were three males that broke in and robbed them and wound up, the, the husband wound up dying. So the husband was murdered in the middle of this case. So as it's completely normal, they took fingernail scrapings. Well, it turns out that an unknown male's DNA showed up in the husband's fingernail scrapings. So they traced that DNA sample back to this homeless guy that they had in the system for previous crimes that he had uh, submitted DNA evidence for. Because usually if, in, in some jurisdictions, if you commit any kind of felony, they're automatically going to take a DNA sample from you. This guy swore up and down. He was not there. He's just a homeless alcoholic. And even the, the police that had had, you know, stuff with him said this guy, this was a very organized, violent case. I don't see this guy being involved in it. So as luck would have it, they found the other two guys, questioned them. They admitted that they were involved. They said, well, you know, how did you get this homeless guy involved? And they're like, I don't even know who that is. So ultimately it turned out he wasn't even there. He wasn't involved in the case at all. It was a happenstance because they, and this, this is the way they ultimately figured it out. He had been in the hospital checked into the hospital at the exact time the case, the, the, the home invasion was going down. So they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt he was not there, yet his DNA is part of the crime scene. How did this happen? Oh no. As it turns out, right before he was at the hospital, EMTs had come and picked him up from a convenience store where he had collapsed, right? So they do all the stuff that EMTs do, and they take him to the hospital. Well, after dropping him off at the hospital, EMTs get a 911 call, drive out to a house where a home invasion had happened. And they worked on the guy that was laying there dying. Oh, wow. And they put an oxygen sensor thing, that little thing that goes on the finger, they put it on his oh, finger. Oh, the same one they used. Transferring DNA from the other guy to this guy. That pulse. So box. that when they did the, the fingernail scrapings, the DNA got from there to there. That's how... It was just transference. Yeah. That's but like... imagine if they had not caught the other two guys. And imagine if the other two guys never said, like, they're just, they lawyered up, said, we're not going to say who we were with. And imagine if he had not had indisputable proof that he was in the hospital. 
he would be probably in prison for murder. Right. Because if you're in a jury, they come and say, we've got your DNA evidence. Yeah. You're going to say, hey, they got his DNA. Wow. Right? Wow. See, and that's how COVID got spread. And <laughs> Right. So this heightened sensitivity can easily create false positives. Analysts are picking up DNA transferred from one person to another by way of an object that both of them have touched or from one piece of evidence to another by crime scene investigators, lab techs, or when two items jostle against each other in an evidence bag. That's why it's even more, it's more crucial with DNA now that you don't mess up your process on the crime scene. The famous case of Amanda Knox, you remember her? Mm -hmm. She went overseas and got in trouble. Right. Accused of participating in the murder of her roommate, investigators discovered traces of Amanda's DNA on the handle of a kitchen knife they were processing. They believed that kitchen knife was the murder weapon, and they ignored that Amanda lived in the house and used the kitchen utensils for cooking all the time. Yeah. So, of course, her DNA would, would be on it. Greg Hampakian, a researcher at Boise State University, conducted an experiment. He had a set of students act as a crime scene unit. They were tasked with collecting soda cans from the teacher's lounge, processing them with modern accepted collection protocols, and then doing the same with five knives that he had placed in the teacher's lounge. Dr. Hampikian had a trick up his sleeve. The five knives were brand new out of a box and had not been used by any of the school staff. So there shouldn't be any DNA whatsoever on it, right? Oh no, I think I know. Still, traces of DNA from one of the school's teaching staff was found present on the blade of one of the brand new knives. A knife that the staff member had never touched or come in contact with it in any way, straight out of the box. How is that possible? It either transferred from the table, when you drop the knife on the table, or one of the students, not thinking, had touched something oh, yeah. and then touched the knife when he put it in the evidence bag. So literally just walking in, touching the doorknob to walk into the crime scene, and then you walk and say, oh my gosh, there's the gun. You pick the gun up, put it in the evidence bag, you might have transferred DNA from the doorknob to so you the can, gun. You can transfer DNA from a, on you, on your skin, to somewhere else? Absolutely. Wow. I can touch this handle that you touched of this pot, touch that, and then go over here and touch that knife. Now your DNA is on that knife, you've never touched that knife. You have to really be... Because then it'll be a mixture of my DNA and your DNA. So someone could go to court and say, Jennifer, we know you were there. We found your DNA on the knife. You're like, I've never been there. I don't understand that. So you'd have to have a very detailed person, like, to really break it down. It's very, it's imperative that these guys process the scenes correctly. But it's even more, it's going to be in the future even more imperative to, to demonstrate in court that just because you found DNA or some other types of evidence does not mean 100% that person was even there. Right, and now we have to deal with AI. Yeah, it's all kind of crazy stuff out there now. Yeah. So it just goes to show, lawyer up and get an expensive lawyer. Yes. Yep. Hopefully no criminals are listening to this. Hopefully. <laughs> In 2013, geneticist Michael Cobble of the National Institute of Standards and Tech in Gaithersburg, Maryland, set up a hypothetical scenario in which a mix of DNA from several people had been found on a ski mask left at a crime scene after a series of robberies. Cobble asked 108 labs across, this is kind of like a test, right? Cobble asked 108 labs across the country to determine 
whether a separate DNA sample, which he posited had come from a suspect in the robberies, was also part of this mix. 73 of the labs got it wrong, saying the suspect's DNA was there, part of that mixture, when in fact it was not. Cobble says, it's the Wild West out there. Too much is left to the analyst's discretion. Wow. So he may have never wore the mask. Wow, wow. But I'm telling you, if I'm a jury, if I'm a juror in court and they come in and say, we found his DNA in that mask, I'm like, well, yeah, dude had the mask on. But it may not be. That's scary. Yes, overall, all of these forensic labs get a failing grade. <gasps> the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration undertook a test of more than 200 forensic laboratories, sending them 21 blind samples for analysis. Error rates were as high as 71%. And in several of the samples, less than half the labs got the correct results. Oh my God. This is blind studies where they say, okay, we're gonna send you stuff and then, and then this person's, the test is, is supposed to not be right. Come back and they say, oh yeah, it's right. That's very scary. In this day and time? In this day and time. This could be a result of either invalid scientific tests or errors in processing samples, or both. The National Institute of Justice conducted a study of 732 actually charged cases, this is real life, and 1,391 forensic examinations, real life, real people on the line, going to prison. Of the 732 cases, 635 had errors relating to the forensic evidence. Of the 1,391 individual forensic examinations, 891 had an error related to the forensic evidence. See, here's, here's some, let's break it down. Seized drugs, like an officer finds you in a, on, on the side of the road, oh, this is drugs, I'm gonna send it to a lab and get it tested. 100% of those cases had errors in testing. And most of that was large numbers of those field test kits that they give the officers to keep in the trunk of their cars. That they gave faulty results. Of the drug? Yes, it would test positive for cocaine when there was no cocaine. It would test positive for heroin so why are they still when there's using no it? heroin. It would test positive for fentanyl when there's no fentanyl. So why are they using it? Why? They really gotta work on these field tests. They're not accurate. You said 100%? 100% of the cases that they tested had errors. Well then why are they using it? I don't know. This... Bite marks, 77% error. Arson investigations, 78% errors in testing. Forensic testing of child sex abuse, meaning that they came in and they did testing, they said sex abuse did happen. 83% error in testing. Blood spatter, 58% errors in testing meaning they came in and said, this dripped from a knife, it wasn't, didn't come from an ax, or, you know, this was from a high-velocity high punch. 58% of those were wrong. Firearms and bullet testing, 39% errors. Hair comparison, 59% errors. Fingerprints, 46% errors in testing. Not even, not even saying it's wrong, but 46% errors in just the way they tested. DNA testing, 64% errors. You're, so you're just saying it's errors. It's not necessarily... That's That means that they come in and they say, you did not get the result that you should have got. Okay. That means they send you blind samples 
like this is, they'll send you Jennifer's DNA. Compare this to Steve's DNA. Is this Steve's DNA? And they go, yeah, Jennifer's DNA is Steve's DNA. Like you should not get that result. So that is a that is an error. So these are just blind tests. These are blind tests that okay, show this okay. many errors in in over 200 labs used by law enforcement. So for DNA testing, they said they found improper handling of samples, mixed sample results, misconnection to an actual case. Forensic pathology. This is where they test bodies and uh, blood from dead bodies to see what happened. 46% errors in testing about whether even a person was murdered or not. In 2009, the National Academy of Sciences was directed to study the current practices of forensics overall. And they said, with the exception of nuclear DNA analysis, no forensic method has been rigorously shown to have the capacity to consistently and with a high degree of certainty demonstrate a connection between evidence and a specific individual or source. This was the National Academy of Science. They said other than a 100% nuclear DNA match, meaning like they got a, a semen sample and tested against a living person's blood, they can say 100% nuclear DNA, this person is that person. Wow. They said other than that, all the other types of forensic evidence cannot 100% specifically identify a person, whether they did it or not. Wow. And so we've ultimately ruined all of forensics put together. Yeah, I don't like this at all. I did. So listener, if you would like more information, if you'd like to do a deeper dive on how bad forensic testing can be, you can check out Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics by Bandon L. Garrett. It's got an excellent book that you can look up that shows like all this massive testing. Wow. Testing problems. So, you know, we watch these cases and like somebody, like um, where they prove they were innocent. You're like, how could they have got it so wrong? Now, when, now, now we, know, we know. It's probably worse than we think. Yeah. But I think it, it would ultimately, it rolls down to if this, if the whole entire case is based on one piece of forensic evidence, that's when you could be really worried that that could be now, if I've got your DNA, if I've got your blood at the place, if I've got your hair samples, if I've got witnesses that saw you, if I've got your fingerprints, if I've got, okay, here's phone evidence from your phone that you were actually here, but you lied and said you're somewhere else. All of that put together, even if one or more of that was tested wrong, then I could still say with some confidence that you know forensics is, is proving. We're still in a much better place than we were. Right. But when we go, well, we have no proof that he was there. We have no other evidence. We just got this this one little drop of, of, of sweat that we got DNA from. Then you have a good chance of that being wrong. Right. It'll get better. Depressing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's really, I'm really depressed. Hopefully the science will continue to progress. I'm sure but it, it will. They're showed in, in, and they showed in the book that using smaller and smaller samples, which the police are really, you know, forensic investigators are really happy about, like, we can use smaller and smaller samples where we're able to solve more cases that it's becoming more and more dangerous mm -hmm. because there's more chance of error when you get partial matches right like like i said like i said the dna nuclear test shows that we've got 46 markers you've got 46 markers both of those match 
There's no other human on earth that's going to have that. But when we got a partial, we've only got like 10 markers, there may be 6 million people that have that same 10 markers. So there's a good chance the guy down the street has those 10 same markers as you. So you got to watch out for it. That's very depressing. Yep. So well, let's this check is, on this. That's done. I'm going to make done. some garlic bread with, yeah, garlic bread. And then we're going to eat. You can add ricotta cheese to it. To your um, own individual bowl, okay. so we'll add ricotta cheese and some. Okay, great. That sounds good. Let's get to it. Okay. But before we do, before we break out the bread and test this. The garlic bread. And test this lasagna soup, <laughs> we're going to do fan favorite. What's in my shorts? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Uh, Are you out of breath? And for this short today, I'm going to pull up one of my favorite go-tos, which are, of course, Pony's Pointless Ponderances. <laughs> Just a bunch of interesting facts that you may not know. Okay. You're good at that. Yes. Just because I love coming up with the titles more than anything else. <laughs> this first interesting factoid, I named Break Wind. Oh, jeez. Scientists created a huge biosphere where they grew numerous plants including trees. But the scientists discovered that they had a major problem. The trees kept falling over. Turns out the trunks of the trees were extremely weak. There was no wind in the biosphere. Wind stresses trees over their life cycle, causing them to grow strong trunks. Oh. So a little swaying of the tree stresses the tree's trunk and it scars and it grows, and that's how they grow so strong. Kind of exercises. Yes, and in the biosphere, oh, no. there's no wind, so the tree just grows, uh, falls over. It's cool. crazy. The creators design at work. The creators that's design cool. at work. This next one I called, You Can't Fool Kevin's Bacon. Of course. Did you know there's an actual government regulation requiring bacon? be packaged with a clear window so that you can see the bacon. Oh. Have you ever wondered that? Well, no. I just always These are all it. gonna be things that make you go, hmm. Oh. In the nineteen seventies, it. it became a big issue of false advertising with a picture of big bacon slices on the package, but thin slices actually inside. Right, right. And I can imagine in the nineteen seventies grown men opening these packages and losing their goddamn minds about some <laughs> bacon. And you know, Congress says, oh, hell no. You can't yes, F yeah. with our bacon. Right. Next one I titled, I swear on my balls. The word testify comes from the same root word as testicles. Oh, God. Because before it became common to testify on a Bible in court, to swear on the Bible, you would commonly swear on your testicles that you would tell the truth. What if you're female? Then you could just lie all the f*** you want to. <laughs> <laughs> what? Where yeah. did you get this? This is true. It's all for real. It's all true. No. Absolutely. Look it up yourself. Why would you swear on your testicles? That's what testify means. I swear on my balls. Shut up. That's really what it means. I don't believe it. It's true. Okay. This next one I titled, Hashtag Everyone is Wrong. That symbol, that hashtag symbol, mm -hmm. the official name is not hashtag or pound. So now there's been this argument, generational argument, well, 
it's, it's a pound, it's a hashtag? No. It's actually, the, the real definition is called an octothorpe. Octothorpe. That's what the name of that symbol is. What's it for? An octothorpe. Oh. It's octo, eight, has eight points. But nobody seems to know where thorpe came from. Hmm. So it's an octothorpe. Now, every time oh. you see hashtag, you will think octothorpe. Oh, interesting. The next one I titled, this is terrible. <laughs> It's ter more terrible especially, than what you've already especially done. Especially because this is February. Well, don't say it. I have A dreams. Emphasis on the A. I have A dreams. Martin Luther King Jr. attended the Crozier Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania in the 1950s. He was given a C in his public speaking class. <laughs> so he has A dreams. Wow. Of course he got a C. That's what made him better. I guess he improved. As time goes on, yes. One of the best public speakers in a generation. He got C's in public speaking. Yep, never give up. So hey, it's, it's not easy for anybody. No. The next one I titled, I Call This Banana Sting. It glows blue. Little Lord of the Rings reference for the nerds out there. Yeah. Bananas glow blue under a black light. Oh. Or when orcs are nearby. <laughs> Have you ever had an orc near a banana? I don't think so. Then you can't prove it's not true. I get a black light. You get a glow under a black light. Don't you have a black light? I think you do, right? Your strobe lights? Those no, black? those are not black lights. Black lights are for stoners. Oh, or banana know. testers. <laughs> there's, a, there's a recurring theme here. The next one's titled, My Balls Are Too Hot. Hot! Damn hot! Real hot! Wimbledon tennis balls are kept in temperature-controlled storage, exactly 68 degrees. Warmer or cooler temperatures can affect the bounciness of the ball. So by regulation standards, the ball has to be 68 degrees. Wow. I totally agree. 68 <laughs> degrees is great. The next one is titled Sticks and Stones. In 2008, the National Toy Hall of Fame inducted its very first toy into its honorary collection. A stick. <laughs> they claim the stick is possibly the oldest toy ever. Wow. Yeah, probably is. Thereby infuriating stone fans all over <laughs> the This next one I titled, Threw Me For A Loop. Fruit Loops, even though they are different colors, all have exactly the same flavor. I knew that. I did know that. I've had to sit and think about it. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought, what I tasted in my mouth was a combination of all the flavors. Me too. But every single one has exactly the same flavor. I'm not a big Fruit Loop fan. And now it is a much less interesting world. <laughs> it's not magical. The next one I titled, Don't Blink, You'll Miss the War. The shortest war in history lasted less than 40 minutes. When Sultan Khalid bin Bargash of Zanzibar refused to bend to British rule, the Crown declared war on Zanzibar. British warships promptly bombarded the palace, and 38 minutes later, Sultan Khalid surrendered, ending the Anglo-Zanzibar War. Do you know what the second shortest war was? What? The War of the King of the North and Daenerys Starborn. Because <laughs> she said, bend the knee. He said, no. They had sex. Oh, yeah, I'll bend the knee. I thought he bent the knee before. Anyway. I, I condensed like two episodes. Yeah, you... 
And you're talking about Jon Snow, right? Yes. Who knows nothing. <laughs> the next one I titled, It's the Pointless Countdown. No reaction. Mm -mm. Countdowns before rocket launches serve no real purpose. Let that sink in for me. NASA, NASA uses countdowns before launches because it first appeared in films. In a 1929 sci-fi film, director Fritz Lang used a countdown to increase tension before a rocket launch in the movie. This became a common film trope. When NASA launched their first few rockets that they televised, spectators were disappointed that real life didn't have a countdown that they were used to seeing in the movies. So NASA began including it. I think there is a point and to it. And they still do it to this day. I think there's a point. There's no point to it. There is a point. There's point for teamwork. There's point to know when it's going to happen. It just builds your expectation that this thing's about well, to happen. Well, how do the rocket launchers, people, think about it? Know how to do it? Think about it. They could literally go around the room. Are you ready? Yes. Are you ready? Yes. Everything good? Yes. Go! Why could they don't have to go. But you're doing it. the same thing. Nah. There's no need to wait. If you're asking all those people, you're kind of doing the same thing. If you're saying, hey, you're not, Bill, you are you ready? Down. That's one. It's I a think pointless countdown. Uh, I don't like that one. I disagree. And the next one I titled, OK Boomer. Oh, jeez. <laughs> the term OK came from Martin Van Buren's campaign for presidency. The campaign staff were distressed that the American public didn't find Van Buren to be the grandest or flashiest of those running for the presidency. So they came up with an internal slogan thrown around by staff and donors. He's not great, but he's old Kinderhook. Old Kinderhook was where Van Buren's hometown was in New York. This slogan leaked and was shortened to, he's not great, but he's okay. Ah. And then everybody started using, well, okay. He's, he's okay. He's okay. It's okay. He's okay. Now this one is, I don't know if I have it. Uh, description for this one. Don't don't get angry until the end of it. So like I said, I titled this one Not a Perfect Experiment. <sighs> Princeton researchers Ernest Weaver and Charles Bray connected phone wires and electricity to the skull and brain of a live cat. <gasps> what? When they spoke into the cat's ear, the sound could be heard through a phone receiver in another room. It was a horrible experiment but it paved the way for cochlear implants. Oh. So now deaf people can hear. Oh. And the last one, I say this for very last, I call it, that's a humdinger. <laughs> this one's short. Okay. It's gonna blow your mind. It is impossible to hum while holding your nose. Should I try it? Everybody else is. <laughs> Let me see. <laughs> you can't hum. Yeah. While holding your nose. I'm holding it. That's more of a groan. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing it. Do it. Try it. No, you can only make like a grunt. <laughs> I'm doing it. Maybe I'm not holding it enough. You got just enough hmm to fill your mouth up with air, but... Like, it's hard mm, at first. Mm, mm. Mm. <laughs> Things that make you go hmm. Mm. This is a thing that you can't go home. Hmm. Right. 
<laughs> and so that wraps that up. I hope you enjoyed those as much as I do. I did. I enjoy useless facts. The hashtag, what was it? Octothorpe? An octothorpe. Octothorpe. There is no such thing as a hashtag or a pound. It's an octothorpe. Well, it wouldn't be cool to say octothorpe relatable or octothorpe. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it. Octothorpe, best day ever. Right. <laughs> Octothorpe, good vibes. Octothorpe, va vacation vibes. Right. Octothorpe, vacay in Florida. <laughs> yes. So that's going to wrap up today's episode. We're going to enjoy this lasagna soup. Lasagna soup. And garlic bread. And garlic bread. So, listener, have a great week. Check out our social media. Check out our Patreon. Check out our Etsy store. There's lots of cool stuff in there. And we will catch you guys next week. Have a great day. Bye.